For all the many reported UFO sightings on land, it seems that there are just as many, if not more, over the oceans of our little blue planet. Numerous commercial airline pilots have reported strange sightings on their flights over vast stretches of water. Military pilots have also reported similar encounters with seemingly impossible aircraft. It's these sightings that resonate with skeptics and believers alike. After all, if there's anyone who would be able to tell the difference between a new type of enemy aircraft and something from out of this world, it's those military pilots. This begs the question of how many UFOs we don't see. If aliens exist, do they use the oceans as landing areas? Do they enter the atmosphere over the oceans in hopes of avoiding radar detection? Assuming their advanced technology doesn't make them impossible to see on earthly radar, of course. Some theories even state that extraterrestrials aren't extra at all. They're really terrestrials. They're from Earth, this theory states. They just live deep in the ocean, where humans can't yet travel given the enormous pressure at those depths. And they pop up on occasion to see how humanity is doing. Whatever the reason for these ocean-centric sightings, it's worth noting that they happen. A lot, it seems. And on today's episode, we'll be delving into one of the most intriguing UFO-related incidents ever recorded. An incident that happened over the Bass Strait, which is located just south of Australia and connects the Indian and Pacific Oceans. It's the 1978 disappearance of Australian pilot Frederick Valentich. Of course, like every UFO-related incident, there are a number of alternate explanations. We'll explore those too. By the end of this episode, you'll be able to weigh each explanation against your own beliefs and experiences to decide whether this was an aircraft malfunction, an accident, or an abduction. And to get things started, I'd like to begin at the end with some of the last words Valentich ever spoke to another human being. While talking to the Melbourne Flight Service Unit over his small plane's radio, Valentich said, That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It's hovering, and it's not an aircraft. Soon after speaking these words, strange metallic sounds came over the radio. Then, the broadcast cut off. Frederick Valentich was never heard from again. Part 1. The Tenacious Valentich Frederick Valentich was born on June 9, 1958 in Australia to Italian immigrant parents. He grew up with two siblings, a brother and a sister. By all accounts, there was nothing spectacular about Frederick. He was said to have been a good brother and son. And shortly before his disappearance, at the age of 20, he proposed to his 16-year-old girlfriend, Rhonda Rushton. Apparently, Frederick and Rhonda were keeping the engagement quiet until Rhonda's 17th birthday. From an early age, Frederick was determined to become a pilot. He was a member of the Royal Australian Air Force Air Training Corps, a youth program run by Australia's Air Force. When he came of age, Frederick attempted to join the parent organization, but he didn't have the relevant educational qualifications. In fact, this was a theme in Frederick's short life. He seemed to struggle with the requirements of becoming a commercial or military pilot. This is important to keep in mind as we explore possible explanations for his disappearance later in the show. 
By the time he took off for his final flight in October of 1978, Frederick Valentich only had his private pilot's license for a year. He was studying to become a commercial pilot, but had failed all five required exam subjects, twice. He tried again in September of 1978, this time failing three out of five of the subjects. But these weren't the only issues he had in learning to fly. Valentich had been reprimanded more than once for making mistakes while flying. He'd twice flown blind into clouds. Given that he had not received the qualifications necessary to fly using instruments alone, this was a serious breach of protocol. Even experienced pilots try to avoid flying into clouds unless absolutely necessary. In fact, at the time of his disappearance, aviation officials were considering prosecuting him for these two cloud incidents. He'd also been reprimanded for flying into restricted airspace. But it's also important to keep in mind that he was only 20 years old. By October of 1978, he accumulated 150 flight hours and a class four instrument rating, which were both significant accomplishments for someone his age. To give you some perspective, you need a minimum of 35 hours of flight time to get your private pilot's license. On the other hand, pilots need around 1500 hours of flight time before they can get their commercial rating. It's also important to consider that the average age of a fighter pilot today is around 40, and that of a commercial pilot is 45. Although he'd been struggling to pass his exams, he seemed to have a head start on other pilots due to his age. But as we progress, we'll see that there were some very irregular things about Valentich's final flight. Whether they were mistakes or done intentionally, we may never know. This is why it's imperative to consider his experience, his age, and the kind of person he was. A less tenacious person might have given up, but not Valentich. He was determined to be a pilot. According to his father, Guido, Frederick wasn't one to make up stories, but he also seemed to have an interest in UFOs. After his son's disappearance, Guido told members of the press that Frederick had been studying UFOs using documents received from the Royal Australian Air Force. He also said that Frederick had expressed concern about what would happen if UFOs attacked. Apparently, the young man claimed to have seen a UFO in the sky once. You could say that Frederick was a believer, and we know that the power of belief is extraordinary, but I'll leave it up to you to decide whether that power is enough to account for what happened after Frederick Valentich took off on what would become his last flight. Part two, the final flight. On October 21st, 1978, Frederick Valentich rented a single-engine Cessna 182L. He was to take off from Morabin Airport, flying toward Cape Otway, located southwest of Melbourne on the southern tip of Australia. Once over Cape Otway, he was to turn south, flying over the Bass Strait to his final destination. His destination, according to the flight plan he filed, was King Island. Located in the Bass Strait between Australia and Tasmania, King Island is a small piece of land known for its lobster, beef, and cheese. Frederick told officials that afternoon that he was heading out to the island to pick up three friends and fly them back to the state of Victoria. He even requested and received three additional life jackets before leaving for Morabin Airport. 
However, it was later reported that Valentich told others he was heading there to pick up some seafood. Officials who later looked into both claims couldn't verify either. As far as they could determine, Valentich had made no plans to meet friends or pick up seafood on the island in the Bass Strait. There were also later reports that his girlfriend, Rhonda, was supposed to join him on the flight. Due to a scheduling conflict, she couldn't make it. Valentich ended up taking the flight alone. Simply wanting to get some additional flight hours under his belt would have been a worthy explanation for the trip. Officials wouldn't have objected to this explanation. So why is it that Frederick reportedly told two different stories about his intentions at King Island? Could it have been some combination of both? Pick up some friends and get some seafood while he was there? If so, why could officials not locate these friends he was supposed to pick up? One explanation offered up in the years since is that Valentich went out that evening looking for UFOs. This could explain why he would have told airport workers about friends or seafood. Perhaps he didn't want to raise any eyebrows. But if he was heading out to look for UFOs, did he know something others didn't? If he was really studying UFOs with resources from the Royal Australian Air Force, did that have anything to do with why he chose that evening to fly to King Island? There's no way to tell just what was going through Valentich's mind as he prepared for the flight. What we do know is that the conditions were ideal for flying. Since Frederick had a class four instrument rating, he was allowed to fly at night under what is called visual meteorological conditions. Essentially, conditions had to be such that he could fly by sight. The opposite of this would be instrument meteorological conditions in which a pilot would have to rely primarily on his or her instruments to fly. If the conditions had been different, aviation officials wouldn't have approved Valentich for takeoff that evening. But as it was, the conditions were nearly perfect for flying. Frederick was to fly below 5,000 feet, according to his flight plan. It was estimated that it would take him 41 minutes to get over Cape Otway, at which point he would change direction and fly another 28 minutes to reach King Island. This made for a total of 69 minutes of flight time there. And with a full tank of fuel, the Cessna had an estimated possible flight time of 300 minutes, more than double the required time to get Frederick to King Island and back again. But he never reached the island. At 18.19 hours, 6.19 p.m. local time, Valentich took off from a robin and started his flight toward Cape Otway. He established radio contact with the Melbourne Flight Service Unit. At 1900 hours, exactly 41 minutes later, he radioed in to report that he was over Cape Otway. His next transmission came six minutes later. The following exchange is a recreation taken from the printed report released after Valentich's disappearance. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Delta Sierra Juliet, I am. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? Delta Sierra Juliet, I cannot affirm. It is four bright. It seems to be like landing lights. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. And it is a large aircraft? Confirm. Unknown due to the speed it's traveling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? 
Delta Sierra Juliet. No known aircraft in the vicinity. Melbourne. It's approaching now from due east towards me. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me three times, at a time at speeds I could not identify. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger, what is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand. Four, five, zero, zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger, stand by. Melbourne Delta Sierra Juliet. It's not an aircraft. It is... Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Can you describe the aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, as it's flying past, it's a long shape. Identify more than... Speed. Before me, right now, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger. And how large would the object be? Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. It seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me. Also, it's got a green light and sort of metallic. It's all shiny on the outside. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It's just vanished. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it... Military aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet. Confirm the aircraft just vanished. Say again? Delta Sierra Juliet. Is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet. Approaching from the southwest. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. The engine is... is rough idling. I've got it set at 2324, and the thing is... Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger. What are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island. Melbourne. That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It is hovering, and it's not an aircraft. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. There were no further transmissions from Frederick Valentich. Part 3. Search and Rescue. The conversation between Frederick Valentich and the Flight Service Unit in Melbourne lasted five minutes, from 7.06 to 7.11 p.m. The weather report that accompanied the transcript from this final exchange also clarified that the weather conditions were excellent. There was some cloud cover at the 5,000 to 7,000-foot range, with a layer of scattered cirrus clouds around 3,000 feet. Winds were light. Visibility was good. We should also note that the sky was darkening around the time of the call, but it was far from full night. The official end of daylight for Cape Otway was 7.18 p.m., so it wasn't even fully dark yet. Almost immediately after failing to hear from Valentich again, the air traffic controller at the flight service unit in Melbourne declared an alert phase, according to search and rescue procedures. This phase went into effect at 7.12 p.m. When the aircraft failed to show up at King Island at 7.33 p.m., officials enacted the distress phase. The reaction was swift, allowing search and rescue efforts to get underway as soon as it was clear the pilot and his plane were missing. Searches were conducted by land, sea, and air, but there was no sign of the plane. A report in the days following the disappearance said that eight planes, including an Australian Air Force reconnaissance plane, were involved in the search. 
During these efforts, searchers found an oil slick in the sea. At first, this looked like a promising lead, thinking that the oil had come from the Cessna Frederick had rented. But when the oil was tested, it was determined to be the wrong type for any kind of plane. Instead, it was oil from a diesel boat engine. The search and rescue efforts continued until October 25th, four days after Valentich's initial disappearance. When they found no sign of the plane, not even any debris floating in the ocean, they called off the search and declared that the accident was presumed fatal. But Frederick's girlfriend and a few of his friends weren't so ready to give up just yet. After the official search ended, his girlfriend chartered a two-hour plane flight to search for Frederick on Cape Otway. Apparently, he had told Rhonda that if he ever got into trouble over the water, he'd turn back toward Cape Otway. And since he reported engine trouble near the end of his transmission, she figured that's just what he did. Meanwhile, a group of his friends were searching the forests on the tip of Cape Otway, hoping to find some evidence that their friend was still alive, or at least, hoping to figure out what really happened to him. Neither search yielded any new information. Eventually, all parties gave it up, but that didn't mean that people stopped theorizing about what happened to the young man. In fact, in the days after his disappearance at the news, several people in the Cape Otway area called in to report UFO sightings from around the same time. According to the Herald Wire Services, a banker and his wife had seen a glowing star-like object floating in the sky the same night Valentich disappeared. The couple was in a town 35 miles southwest of Melbourne, near the route Valentich would have taken. They said that they were driving when they saw the object and that it stayed above them for nearly an hour. They described it as bright with green flickering lights at one end. Recall that Valentich also described a green light on the craft he was seeing during the transmission. The same news article said that some King Island residents had been seeing strange lights in the sky in the six weeks leading up to the disappearance. A UPI report published in the days after Valentich went missing said that two other planes had gone missing in the same area in the last 10 years. Several years after the disappearance, a Canadian newspaper published an article about a plumber who was vacationing in the area. He was down at the water, taking pictures of the Bass Strait at sunset. While he was taking the pictures, he noticed nothing out of the ordinary. But when he had them developed, he found what looked to him like a UFO. Sure enough, there is something in the picture. It's a black lump of some kind that looks as if it could be flying across the frame. However, it could just as easily be an insect that alighted on the lens for a moment or a bird flying across the frame and caught out of focus. Still, the photograph has fueled speculation for years and is still available to see online. Another eyewitness claimed to have seen evidence that could clear this mysterious case up. Unfortunately, the information didn't come to light until it was too late. The Herald Sun reported in 2014 that a UFO investigator was asking for help identifying a farmer who claimed to have seen something extraordinary on the night of Valentich's disappearance. Reportedly, this unidentified farmer had seen a UFO flying past with a small plane stuck to its side dripping oil as it passed in the sky. On his tractor at the time, 
the farmer is said to have scratched the plane's tail number into the body of his tractor. But after telling a few close friends about the sighting, he was ridiculed and decided not to come forward with the information. 36 years later, in 2014, the farmer was dead, moved away, or simply didn't want to become involved in dredging up the investigation. It's unclear where the UFO investigator got this information, but it was just another dead end in a case full of them. Still, that's not to say that we can't speculate. To be sure, many people have over the years. And in the next and final section, we'll look at a few of the more credible explanations posited by believers and skeptics alike. Part four, what really happened? The most fantastical explanation for the disappearance of Frederick Valentich is also the hardest to prove, UFO abduction. But before we get to the other ones, let's explore this. There are certain factors in favor of the UFO explanation, to be sure. The two biggest factors of this explanation are Valentich's conversation with the air traffic controller and the fact that not one piece of his plane was recovered. If he did in fact crash, why was there no sign of wreckage? Remember, the search and rescue efforts were underway very quickly. But we also have to remember that it was dark by the time the rescuers were out in force. And the waters of the Bass Strait are known for being treacherous and rough. By the time the sun came up, the wreckage could have been transferred away from the crash site or sucked under the water. Frederick Valentich's conversation is the most telling. While certainly not the most experienced pilot, Valentich did have 150 hours of flight time under his belt, more than quadruple the 35 hours needed to get a private pilot's license, but also far less than the 1,500 hours needed for a commercial license. We know that he wanted to be a pilot more than anything in the world, so it's safe to assume that he knew a fair bit about planes. So if he saw an aircraft he recognized, he would be able to explain what it was to the air traffic controller. But he was clearly baffled during his five-minute conversation with the flight service unit. He asked repeatedly if there were any known aircraft in the vicinity. The controller replied that there were none. So if there was a craft there, why couldn't Valentich identify it? And why did he feel it was toying with him? The mention of the lights in the long metallic body is also telling. Frederick clearly saw something he couldn't identify, an unidentified flying object. And among his last words was the chilling statement, it's not an aircraft. What did he mean by that? Did he mean it wasn't an aircraft like any he'd ever seen? Or that it was something other than an aircraft altogether? And if so, what could it have been? A report published in the Skeptical Inquirer in 2013 attempted to answer these questions. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether the theorized answers are any more or less reasonable than a possible UFO abduction. According to the report, authored by Joe Nickel and pilot and astronomer James Magaha, the explanation for this disappearance is simple. At the time of the disappearance, there would have been four bright celestial bodies visible in the sky. These would have been Mercury, Venus, Mars, and the star Antares. They would have been in a roughly elongated diamond shape overhead. 
This, the authors posit, is what Frederick Valentich saw that night. And given his belief in UFOs, his imagination took over. But what about Frederick saying that the aircraft was metallic and shiny? According to Nickel and Magaha, this was Valentich's mind filling in the dots, adding things that weren't there. But what about the movement of the lights? Frederick described the object as playing with him, flying past at times and orbiting above him. How could three bright planets and one star do this? Nickel and Magaha chalk it up to his inexperience. They think that, in fact, he was the one moving, making it appear as though the celestial bodies were the ones in motion. Certainly, this seems like a reasonable explanation when Frederick said that he was orbiting and the craft was hovering above him. But what about when he said the craft flew over him three times at speeds he could not identify? For this to be the case, Valentich would have been flying in tight circles to make it appear as if the stationary lights were zooming over him. Indeed, this is what the two authors of the report suggest. They posit that Valentich entered what is known in aviation as a graveyard spiral. This can happen when a pilot enters a spiral gradually without noticing it first. When the inner ear becomes gradually attuned to the motion, it can cause disorientation in the pilot making them think they're flying straight when, in fact, they're flying in a spiral. So even if the pilot notices a loss of altitude on the instruments and makes a correction, the correction then feels like he's going into a spin rather than getting out of it. The reason it's called a graveyard spiral is that it's often too late by the time the pilot realizes what's happening. By the time they see the ground or the water, they can do nothing to get out of the spiral. And it's rare for a pilot to survive this kind of crash. And since it's reasonable to assume that Valentich was distracted by the sight of what he perceived to be a UFO, the authors suggest it would have been entirely possible to neglect his instruments. They even went on to suggest that the green light Valentich reported seeing was nothing more than the green wing light on his own aircraft reflected in the plane's windshield and superimposed over the four celestial bodies he was fixated on in the sky. This explanation seems more plausible than one suggested shortly after Valentich's disappearance. One pilot hypothesized that Valentich had managed to turn himself upside down and was seeing his own airplane's lights reflected in the ocean water, mistaking it for a UFO. And while this has been known to happen, especially when out over the ocean and during sunset, when the horizon and the water create mirror images, it is rare. Plus, with the gravity-fed fuel system on the Cessna, there was no way Valentich would have been able to fly upside down for the duration of the five-minute conversation he had with air traffic control. Of course, this gravity-fed engine is taken into account in Magaha and Nichols' explanation. Near the end of Frederick's transmission, he reports that the aircraft's engine is rough idling. This, the authors suggest, would have been normal for that kind of engine in a graveyard spiral. As the spiral increased, the G-forces acting on the aircraft could have constricted the flow of fuel to the engine, causing the rough idle Valentich mentioned. But we also must remember that it wasn't yet fully dark when this happened. Although sunset time for Cape Otway was around 6.49 p.m., and of daylight wasn't until 7.18 p.m. This means that there was still plenty of light to see by, 
and a graveyard spiral most often happens when pilots are flying blind or can't see the horizon. And according to timeanddate.com, nautical twilight wasn't supposed to end until 7.50 that night, which means that while bright stars and planets would have been visible, so too would the horizon. So the question is, would Frederick Valentich have been so distracted by the sight of these four points of light in the slowly darkening night sky that he would have neglected his flying duties? And if so, would he have filled in the blanks with his imagination? And what about when the craft vanished and then reappeared? The authors of the report don't address this portion of the conversation. Would the perfect storm of circumstance that Magaha and Nichols suggested have been enough to make him think he was seeing an aircraft streaking above him, when in reality, it was his craft that was doing the moving? Valentich's own father told the press in the days after Frederick's disappearance that he thought UFOs had abducted the young man, but he also said that they would probably hold him for a week or so before letting him go. Obviously, this was not the case. Frederick Valentich was never seen again. Then again, some people suggested that he'd staged the whole thing, that it was a hoax, allowing him to fly off and land at some other airport and then do something. There's not really a clear reason for Valentich to want to disappear. He wasn't a wanted criminal. He was fairly close to his family and had a fiance to get back to. And we can't forget that Rhonda was originally supposed to go on the trip with him. Others suggest that Valentich killed himself. They point to his failing the commercial pilot's exams several times as proof that he was distraught. But those who knew him well discounted this as a possibility. He wasn't suicidal. He seemed to be a well-adjusted young man, although struggling a bit with his chosen career path. Five years after the disappearance, a piece of an aircraft, an engine cowl flap, was found washed up on Flinders Island in the Bass Strait. After investigating, officials determined that the part came from the same kind of Cessna plane that Valentich had been flying that night. And they also determined that the range of serial numbers the cowl flap fell into would have included the plane Valentich had rented. Flinders Island is located over 200 miles from King Island, and around 250 miles from Cape Otway. Is it possible that the plane part could have traveled so far in the rough currents of the Bass Strait? Sure, it's possible. It's also possible that what happened to Frederick Valentich that night was nothing our rational minds can explain away. It's possible that what he saw was really something more than an aircraft, at least as we know them. While we may doubt, argue, convince, and speculate, there are strange things that happen in the night sky, strange things that we see, and likely many more that we don't. There may or may not be rational explanations for these strange occurrences, but there's one thing to keep in mind as you consider the truth of this matter. It's possible that they're out there. Mm -hmm.